We're going to mostly be in verses 12 to 16 this morning. And Paul uses the imagery here of a runner running a race. And the problem is I hate running, <laughs> which is shocking, right? Because like, I clearly look like a runner. I hate running. Every step is its own torture. The whole runner's high thing is a lie. I, I'm convinced that that was some advertising campaign that Nike came up with to sell more shoes. Because the only thought that I've ever had while running is, I hate this, I hate this. When is this going to be over? I hate this. And when I was younger, my dad would try the whole, you know, just don't think about how far you have till it's over. Just pick a spot, like a house or something, and just I just got to make it to that house. But that doesn't work. I know that's not what I'm running towards. I've never gotten to that house and thought, okay, great, you made it, now on to the next one, and then thought, hey, I tricked me. <laughs> like, I know that's not what I'm running towards, and I just, I hate every step of it. But I never mind running if I'm running while I'm doing something else. Right? If I'm playing soccer or football or something, I don't hate every step that I'm running. If I'm doing some sort of training at work, I don't mind running. I don't even think about it. I don't think about it if I'm playing with the kids running around the park or pulling them on a sled. Like If I'm doing something else, I don't hate it. But if I'm just running, I can't stand it. And I think that part of the reason, at least for that, is that I just don't care about the goal, right? Obviously, running has very real health benefits, but in the middle of a run, those seem really far away. And they're so distant and intangible, they're not really real. Paul says that the Christian life is like a race and we have to run. And I wonder if sometimes the reason we find it hard to run is the goal feels really intangible and it doesn't always feel real. So if that is the case, I hope that our passage this morning will bring our goal back into focus. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 to 16 again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That I may know him. I think that phrase is the key to all of chapter 3. 
why is it that in the first half of the chapter, Paul casts aside all of his worldly privileges and accomplishments? And why does he run with such intensity in the second half? He says, that I may know him. But what exactly does he mean by that? It seems a little strange. It almost sounds at, at first like just as Sunday school answer, like Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus, that I may know him. I mean, this is Paul that we're talking about. If anybody could say, I know Jesus, you would think it would be Paul, right? He first encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus decades ago, and he hasn't stopped to take a breath since then. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel and planted churches all across the Roman Empire. He wrote as thoroughly and eloquently on the doctrines of Christ as anybody. And yet he still says the driving force, the, the motivator in his life is to know Jesus. So he's clearly not talking about just mere head knowledge. And I don't think he's even talking about just that moment of salvation. Because after Damascus, he could say truthfully, now I know Jesus. But neither of those seem enough. He still says, I want to know him. He's talking about that deep, intimate knowledge, experiencing Christ day after day. It's not enough just to know about him. It's not enough to just be like, oh, you know, thanks for saving me. We're good. I'll see you up in heaven. I need you today. I need more now. And that sounds good, right? We want that. We might not always want it as much as we know we should want it. But what does it mean to know Jesus like that? This is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, which sounds great, right? Like to know Jesus means to experience his power. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The thing about resurrection is that suffering and death always come first. And we all know what it's like to suffer. Some of us a lot more than others. The pain of broken relationships and loneliness. Pain of financial need and failing health. Brokenness or injustice. We've all experienced suffering and that pain can run deep. Yet Paul says, keep your eye on the prize. The pain is real, I know, and Paul knew it better than me probably. But more suffering for more of Jesus was a trade that Paul was willing to make any day. He was willing to cast aside everything that he once held dear and run as fast as he could towards suffering 
not because he wanted the pain for itself, but because he knew that that was the way to more of Christ. The more he experienced the pain of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the more Christ poured himself out to Paul. Our God is the God of comfort, which means that we can rejoice in our pain because it means that he is going to give us a fuller measure of himself. And I don't say that to discount the pain of suffering. It's real. And yet, Paul says, for the sheer joy of being close to Christ, more pain is a bargain if that's all it costs. And yes, knowing Jesus means embracing his suffering and death. It means taking up our crosses and following him. But he embraced our pain first. He united himself to us. He took on our pain, our sin, our death, so that when we experience those, that is not the end. It's just the door we pass through to even more of him at the end in the resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And it almost sounds like there's doubt in that last phrase, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So is he saying there's, there's some chance that I won't? that I have to do something to try to make sure that whatever happens, I know I'm going to have that, but I just got to keep running. No, I think the doubt isn't whether or not he will be resurrected. The doubt is how that's going to happen. I think he's saying, I don't know if I'm going to die in this cell or if Jesus is going to come back first in all of his glory But what does that matter? Because either way, whatever means he chooses, the end result is that I will be resurrected and I will be in his presence. And so he says, when that is my end, when I know that no matter what, that is what is going to happen, that is what is set before me, you better believe I'm going to run. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul uses this very vivid imagery of a runner running a race, trying to win. And he makes it very clear he's still running the race, right? He says it three different ways. I haven't obtained it. 
I'm not perfect. I haven't made it my own. He wants to make very sure we understand he's still running. Remember from last week, the old Paul, Saul could say, I've made it. I've won. Right? He said, I was blameless under the law. Saul had arrived, but Paul's still running. So what is the race then that he's talking about? Again, at first glance, it might seem like he's talking about resurrection because that's the last thing that he references in verse 11. But that, that doesn't work, right? Because if he's saying, I have to run, I haven't obtained it yet, I have to run to obtain it, then isn't he saying, I, I have to do something to make sure that I get my resurrection and, and therefore I've, something I have to do to run to get my salvation. Which is antithetical to everything Paul's ever said about the gospel and salvation. And he even says in verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. He already belongs to Christ. There can be no doubt about his future resurrection. Jesus has made him his own, and there's nothing that can change that. So why is he running with such intensity? Again, I go back to verse 10, and the phrase that I think the whole chapter rests on is that I may know him. He's running desperate to win that I may know Jesus. Now, let's be honest. We might not ever say it this plainly, but we kind of live it sometimes the obvious question is, isn't that race already over? We, we know him already. You said, Paul, Christ Jesus has made me his own. I know Jesus and he knows me. Is, isn't the race over? Why do we still have to run? Can you even win that race? And if you can, does that mean you can lose that race? He says he hasn't obtained it. Are there people who don't ever obtain it? Sure, Paul, we don't know Jesus fully yet. We're here on earth in our sinful bodies, with our sinful natures, and he's up in heaven, we're never going to fully know him on earth. We will know him in heaven. We know we're going to be in his presence. So why would you run with such intensity for a prize that you know you're going to get? Running's terrible. I hate running. 
Why should I run if I don't have to? And I think Paul's response is, I have Jesus set before me. Jesus, God himself, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, my Redeemer is right there in front of me. How can I not run? The question isn't, why would I run if I don't have to? The question is, how can you not? It reminds me of the imagery that C.S. Lewis uses in The Last Battle. He starts the last chapter of the last book by saying... If one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. And so you come to the end of the book, and the world, Narnia, is, is ended. And the, the characters, the children, and the last of the Narnians find themselves on the outskirts of the, the true Narnia, of heaven, and they begin to run. They just start running, and they're running over foothills and up the sides of waterfalls and up mountainsides as steep as pyramids. And they're running and they're not growing tired. They're not getting winded. And the cry that they're continually calling out to each other as they run is further up and further in. And they keep running and as they run, everything's getting bigger and more beautiful. And they keep calling out to each other further up and further in. That's Lewis's picture of heaven, this eternal, continual moving further up and further into the joy and the beauty of Christ. And I think that's the same imagery Paul is using here. He sees Christ in front of him and he just bolts. And as he's running, he looks back to us and he says, Jesus is right there. Further up and further in, how can you not want to just run and run without growing tired? Yes, we can be assured that we will see him clearly and know him fully in heaven. But he's right in front of us. How can we not run How can our rallying cry to each other not be further up and further in? And yet, how often do we not run like that? We take our eyes off of Jesus and we immediately veer off track. We're running, we have our eyes on him, and then we're like, ooh, and we're through the stands out into the parking lot and we're completely lost again. We have the greatest prize in heaven and earth in front of us and yet we're so easily distracted. And I think one of our biggest problems is we convince ourselves that like Saul, we've already arrived. We've already obtained our full measure of Christ. 
And don't get me wrong, He fills us with Himself and does not hold back. But we're small, leaky vessels, and He's continually making us bigger and patching our holes so that He can fill us with more of Himself. Yes, we are filled with Christ already, but we run to Him so that we can have even more. And Paul says this is what spiritual maturity is. It's this constant recognition that we need more of Jesus. Which outside of the gospel would be insanely presumptuous, right? Like, God, I know you have died for me. I know you've given freely of yourself, but that's not enough. I want more. And yet Paul says that's what maturity is, is it's I... You have given freely of yourself, but today I need more. I need you now. The way that D.A. Carson described 15 and 16 is a Christian should never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. A Christian should never be satisfied with yesterday's grace. Jesus, yesterday you were more than enough. You filled me to the brim with yourself. But that's not enough today. Today I need to go further up and further in. For those of you who don't know this about me, I don't exactly have my dream job. And I'm honestly okay with that. I'm content with where God has me. But that doesn't mean that it's not hard sometimes. And two weeks ago was one of those more difficult times. And I was trying to prepare for the sermon this morning and I had all my commentaries out, but I was just so exhausted and discouraged by work. And I realized like 20 minutes into this that I hadn't done anything. So I buckled down and I'm gonna try harder and I'm gonna get my work done. And I still could like, I couldn't focus because I was just so tired and discouraged. Then I started to get really discouraged because here I'm tr- I'm trying to prepare a sermon on running after Jesus where Paul says I lay behind everything so that I might run and I can't focus. And then it finally hit me like a ton of bricks. I need to know Jesus. Like, I, I need to stop trying to prepare a sermon on running to him, and I just need to run to him. And so I spent the next four hours just running to him. I listened to the Gospel of John on streetlights from beginning to end, just, Jesus, I need you. And then I prayed, and then I kind of bounced around 
Scripture, just looking at His majesty and His glory and my hope in Him. And I read some of my favorite Puritan writings on who Jesus is and His death. I spent hours running, and all I wanted to do was keep running. As great as that time was, though, that's not enough for today. Today, it's not good enough to look back and think, man, things were really great two weeks ago. It's that, that was good. Now I'm set. My tank's full. I'm good for a while. I can't be satisfied with yesterday's grace. Today, I need more. Today, I need to go further up and further in. And I say all of that not so that you'll think, oh, wow, Jake's mature like Paul. Or to prove that I practice what it is that I'm preaching on. I say it so that hopefully it will be a reminder to you how energizing it is to just run to him. To close out this morning, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Um, you don't have to turn there. Um, I'm just going to go to Colossians and Revelations, which were t two of the passages that I read that night. And I read them as one like final reminder that this is who we're running towards. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And what will it be like when the preeminent one presents us holy and blameless before himself? This is just a few snippets from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will, not, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And with John, Paul would say, amen, come Lord Jesus. He ends the chapter in verse 20 and 21 by saying, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's giving one final exhortation. This is the prize. Jesus is our Lord and we are citizens of his kingdom. And Paul says, with that set before me, how can I not run? run further up and further in. It's just run to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are too easily distracted. and We're so easy to forget that our prize is knowing more of you, experiencing more of you. And so when that's the case, I ask that as you promised through Paul here, that you would reveal that to us, that you would 
reveal yourself to us and reignite our hunger and our thirst for you so that we would be desperate each day to win that prize of knowing you. We pray this in your name. Amen.